Okay. So welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where we argue for civilian ownership of nuclear weapons as a starting point. I'm your host, Yassine Masoud. And today's topic is going to be a narrow slice of the gun culture debate. And so, Jay, are you like on proper notice to what, on what to expect? Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. So it's, it's one-sided because I think, what is it? I think you're the only person that's like sort of not okay with guns. I believe that all handguns should be banned from civilian ownership anywhere. And probably all the other guns, you know, you should have pretty hefty requirements, if, if not outright. More like a pilot's license? An airplane pilot's license, maybe that level of restriction. Right, yeah. So welcome to the Bailey. This is the show where we dogpile on Jay for being against guns. <laughs> it may be a good idea just to drop out of here. <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> no, no, no. I think I think Jay sh- definitely should uh, remain because otherwise it's just going to be... They're going to need... I, I mean, I, I'm really confident that my arguments will prevail, but do what you want. Well, I don't want you to get dogpiled in the process is the trouble. I, I, I will... I, 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 for a living, disagree with lots of people and win. I, okay, so you like concerned. being in the... I, I like being right. <laughs> I see. Getting dogpiled is your fetish, I see. <laughs> That's... You could look at it that way. Is that, is that like a furry subform? <laughs> yes! <laughs> you know, you're, it's a free country. So, Jay, you said you uh, disagree with people for a living. Are you also an attorney? I'm an investor. Ah. <laughs> Are you a Wall Street bets investor? Like, what are we talking about? <laughs> I mean, if you buy a short, if you short a stock, then you, that's by definition disagreeing with a lot of people. Buying a stock is also disagreeing with a lot of people if you expect it to go up. Yeah. But to set the scene, I, I'm still having trouble like coalescing a, a specific theme on this discussion. All right. So, 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 so l- let's, let's maybe look at it this way. What does everyone believe about gun laws? Let's go alphabetically, CRC. I generally believe that uh, you know guns are uh, they're fun they're they're a tool they're, they're good for self defense you might as well um, keep the laws in a way that uh, responsible people can get them I don't have a problem with with uh, some restrictions on things but uh, I understand why people are very much against restrictions Jeff so I guess since I live in Berkeley I end up dealing with a bunch of really silly gun laws and so I realized just how how much the implementation of these laws they might sound good in like a platonic sense but they get they get bastardized uh in the implementation details so i i tend to be against most gun restrictions but i would really like like i would want to ban all guns tomorrow if there was something better that did the same job like some sort of super taser jay i i think that you know guns should be heavily restricted uh civilians should not be able to buy handguns and you know, probably shouldn't be allowed to buy most other kinds of guns. And if they are allowed to buy them, they should have to go through at minimum a psychological screening. Kulak. Um, I'm pretty much a, a gun ownership maximalist. Like, I, I'm Canadian, but I'd support a Second Amendment up here, like, fully. And I'd support greatly expanding the U.S. Second Amendment. So, essentially, treating the Second Amendment the way the U.S. treats the first, I'd fully support uh, up to what level? What what make, what's the yield here that you're willing to have in the civilian hands? Um, up to point one of a kiloton. Okay. You are okay 
with a 10-pound missile. 100 pound. No, no, tenth of a ki- Oh my god, a hundred pounds. You're okay with a hundred pound shell. Hundred kilo. Hundred kilo shell. Two hundred kilo shell. of TNT equivalent. It doesn't necessarily have to be a hundred pounds. Okay, okay, Jay, save your outrage for the actual discussion. Alright, fair, fair, fair. I just I okay, fair. I would be willing to accept up to like a, a two to three times tax on them. <laughs> <laughs> is, this, is this is this real? Is this, no no no? I'll, okay. I'll say I'll say, right, I'll, say right. I'll say Master Thief. Um, in a perfect world, there would be no guns. Uh, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. However, they exist. This isn't a perfect world. Uh, so the question is how to deal with the consequences. How to encourage people to be responsible with them? Because. Uh, to my view, being you know an attorney with uh, with a little bit more than an academic interest in this, gun ownership is the defining is along with voting, jury service, service in public office, one of the defining hallmarks of a citizen, someone who's a full member of the polity. Is do you trust them to own a gun? Basically, do you trust them with your life, McMaster? Yeah, I am for status quo firearms ownership in the United States. I am happy with uh, things as they work at, let's say, the Minnesota baseline. Firearms ownership is pretty decent in this state. More restrictionist, I would be upset about it. God's sake, I just want a grill. <laughs> uh, so I, I would be in favor of uh, ownership maximalism as well. I support the civilian ownership of machine guns, howitzers, uh, civilian ownership of nuclear weapons as well. The thing I would be willing to compromise on is uh, having some sort of uh, uh, system where Whatever the government owns, civilians can own as well. So if the government bans something for itself, then it is allowed to ban it for civilian ownership as well. So, so we've all stated our positions. Now let's all state the falsification of those positions. What would convince you that you are wrong and you should change your mind? <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> That could be the entire theme of the show, actually. Yeah, we could we could just talk about that. What would it take to convince these libertarians that firearms ownership is wrong? Yeah, that's a great that's a great maybe that's the topic. Well, in that case, I'm going to probably uh, I'll have to think about it a minute, but I'm going to probably want to restate my initial phrase. Uh, no, no, the it, reason I had everybody say it first is because that's if you have to if you know you falsify it later, you can you can, no no like, no. It was it was more of the uh, concept that I don't think my initial phrasing really lends itself to a falsification. I didn't really state a position other than a, I like well, no, it. No, but but I mean, what what would convince you that that's not the position you want to hold? Well, on? Since, since my position is I like it, um, I would have to change my mind about liking it. Uh, that's, I mean, that's my, that's my point. It's like well, but, what I said but, was not. Presumably, there. I are have an answer. Okay. We can we can stop this back and forth. Okay. <laughs> Uh, the falsification for my position would be if uh, the government was run by angels, uh, if if that's not available, then if the government was run by Iceland, I would consider giving Iceland government more leeway in terms of what weapons it owns. And the reason, the basis for that is that it has demonstrated itself to be a responsible steward of uh, uh, government authority. And that's uh, evidenced by their uh, track record and how many civilians its police force has uh, killed over a hundred years 
I believe the answer is one. Wow. And when that happened, they, the police officers started a candlelight vigil, even though this was a guy that barricaded himself in an apartment with several firearms. So if we had the level of engagement that the Iceland police force and government uses to approach violence and how it meets it out to its civilians, I would be more okay with civilian restrictions on firearm ownership. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. That's pretty similar to my position. Uh, Japan, for example, has ridiculously low crime and they also heavily restrict guns. And I don't think Japan would be better off if they unbanned guns tomorrow. And if the government you know, that I live under was that competent at reducing crime, then I, I would be much more willing to, to have more restrictions placed on me. Interesting. And to expand further, the, the basis for my philosophy when it comes to firearm ownership is I strongly detest the notion that government is either more inherently more responsible or more entitled to certain powers than civilians. So for me, it's kind of an equality standpoint you know, related to my anarchism, where if you give the government power, then at minimum, you should give civilians the same power. I would argue for civilians to have more power than uh, government agents. And for it to be flipped, which is kind of the status quo in a lot of jurisdictions, that is just abhorrent to me. And I think unsustainable from the standpoint of uh, from equality. I, I, I feel like, I, I feel like the, that it would be impossible to convince you, Usain. Well, yeah, with that framework, it's like saying it, it would be impossible to convince you that slavery is actually a good thing. Like, yeah, sure. Like, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think, I think in like ancient Rome, slavery was like, you know, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say good, but like, you know, certainly not unreasonable. <laughs> and I mean, I mean American we're, South we're slavery <laughs> was like uniquely and, horrible and in the history of like pivot. slaves, um, because it. It wasn't economically motivated, but but I was going to say there is an observed piece of evidence that would totally persuade me, and that would be if there was a c country that was so maximalist for guns that had outcomes as worse, as bad as the totalitarian regimes that had zero gun control. Like as far as I'm concerned, if a maximalist Second Amendment produce produces two to four deaths per hundred thousand of murder a year. It's still worth it if it reduces the odds of Soviet Russia or communist China or or Nazi Germany by like two to three percent. Like the the bodies stack up massively if it just if massive gun ownership just checks that by one to two percent. So Kulak, your your position would be empirically based in in that you would change your opinion if the facts change. At least the if the measurable empirics change. Yes. Same for me. If you can actually demonstrate that you can control the firearm supply, I would be on board with mandatory licensing. Well, licensing. So, so, so this is sort of why you've seen. I, I'm not sure. Like, it's productive to talk about your position because, like, I, I don't think if since it's not empirically based, like, we, we could have like a long philosophical discussion about essentially anarchism. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like that would be like. Very far afield and probably not productive. Wait, so why did you say it was not empirically based? Because it seems like the empirical disagreement is about the competency of the governments we live under, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, that's fair. Yes. Well, but, but you also said like, you know, the, the government shouldn't have a power 
that individuals don't also have, and and that doesn't seem based on some empirical basis. That seems well, no, it is well, it is uh, the empirical basis is that government is run by humans. If government suddenly wasn't run by humans and run by some species with extra, but but, uh, but it's not an extra but, capacity. But, but I, yeah. I feel I feel like that doesn't actually capture how government works. Like like, like airplanes are run by humans. Yet, despite that, they have so much. Like, like commercial airlines have far, far higher safety ratings than any individual pilot. It is the combination of the human and the institution which creates like a very different kind of behavior and outcome than a bunch of random individuals. Well, yeah. So that's why I gave Iceland as an example. Yeah, I, I, you you did seem to choose the most extreme example possible, but <laughs> but, but 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 that's sort of my point. To, to say that like it, it, it's run by humans and therefore it's imperfect, I, I think that's really going much too far. Well, well, not necessarily. Not just it's imperfect because it's run by humans. It's imperfect because it's run by humans, and there's no countervailing culture or set of in- incentives or an ins- institution in place to correct the disabilities and downfalls of typical humans when they when you're giving them power. So you mean like some sort of system of checks and balances? It doesn't have to be that. I mean, you can have, if you had like a, uh, like a priest caste that was somehow the, the de facto government in a society and their institution and tradition and culture rendered them very responsible stewards of how government is managed, I would be okay with that as well. But but, but the U.S. has checks and balances, right? Okay, like, it, it like I said, I didn't, I didn't say checks and balances. I said it doesn't have to be checks and balances. But, but you're not eliminating checks and balances. No, if it's effective, it, that's okay as well. Well, okay, so so, so what, and, and your efficacy level is Iceland? I mean, yeah, ideally. One one can dream. But, 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 but we don't, I, I mean... Like Iceland faces fundamentally different challenges than the United States. Like, like no one is going, you know, no one is hoping that Iceland will defend them from Russia. Okay, <laughs> so like, I don't think I don't think that you're being as convincing as you expect that line of argument to be. A little confused by this too. Well, I think he's trying to say that you can't you can't get a United States that's like Iceland. I think is what he's trying to say. It doesn't scale. Is that your argument, Jay? Well, it, it, it's more l- l- like, okay, so, so, so this. So you can have like peaceful society or superpower, but not both. Well, no, no, that's, that's not even it. Like, like suppose we adopted in the United States this, this view that, that we're not going to have a big military until we can like be nice to our people. Then, you know, the Russians decide that actually we'd like to control Poland and the Czech Republic again, because now America will not come to their defense. And, you know, maybe we've managed to achieve this principled notion uh, over here of like, you know, restricting the government from things that it does not allow to its individuals. But as a result, you know, Poland and the Czech Republic and probably a bunch of the rest of Eastern Europe are in real trouble. To say nothing of like, I, I mean, they they basically get turned into Ukraine. So nothing nothing about that situation necessarily requires a curtailing of civilian ownership of firearms. 
In fact, you can actually buttress, uh, you know, national defense by having widespread firearm and marksmanship uh, skills. Yeah, but but what if that isn't the way it goes, right? Like, what if to to achieve this principle that you've articulated, we go the other way? And 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 also, what if what if the costs of doing that, of of all that additional marksmanship, is like the same as the status quo, except with much more gun murder and suicide? So forgive me for this potentially shitty analogy, but if you asked me, oh, too bad Let's Stay Civilized isn't, isn't here, but if you asked me, uh, what would it take for you to eat a crepe? I would say, you know, if, you know, if it's healthy and like done in a relatively sanitary condition by someone relatively competent, I would eat a crepe. And if you say, well, what if there isn't one? What if there are no instances where those conditions can be met? And I would say, well, I'm not going to eat that crepe. So, you know, there's, there's going to be a threshold. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. I, I feel like the problem with that analogy is that there are no, like, horrible negative consequences to you not eating that crap. There are potentially horrible negative con- Like, there are no externalities in that scenario. You either eat the crap or you don't. And, and that affects you and, like, the crap seller. But, but in the case of gun legislation, there are externalities. Yeah, but and I think talking about externalities just confuses the the discussion because that just like branches out into so many different. All right, ways. All right fair enough. I, I, in in any event, I, based on all of this discussion, I I would like to propose that the topic should be empirical considerations for gun restrictions and the ways around them in the rich world. Uh, to Jay one. Small thing. So would you be okay with civilian gun ownership as long as those civilians were required to buy liability insurance that covered any damages that they caused with those guns? Well, you can't really insure against death, right? Like, like you, you, you can't yes, bring you can. someone back it's to called life. life insurance. Let, let, let me rephrase. The remedy of insurance is insufficient to murder. Yeah. Like, 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 like if, if, if we were talking about like, you know, bulldozers or cars, indeed. Cars, we require you know you to buy and hold liability insurance, right? And we have a, a licensing process for cars, um, and those laws are are pretty muscular. And as a result, you know that that works out pretty well. And and yeah, actually, if if you could do if you could bring guns down to like the risk utility ratio of cars. I would probably be okay. At the moment, I view the gun utility to risk ratio as like pretty far down. And the car utility to risk ratio is pretty far high. And part of that is that cars are just like very important. You know, you need a car to get to work. You don't need a gun to get to work, except if you're like, you know, using the gun for work. <laughs> All right. Well, what's the, what are the utilities of uh, firearms in your view, Jay? Um, I mean, for civilian use, I would say hunting, and uh, because it's fun, uh, maybe self-defense in like very unusual circumstances. How unusual? Why do you, why do you say unusual? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, crime in the United States is is very low. So, like, I, I mean, New York City has a pretty good uh, standard. The you 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 if you want to carry a gun. Uh, for for self defense, you know, you you explain to the police, the New York PD, why you think you need that gun, and the NYPD decides whether or not you need it. And <laughs> usually, mm-hmm. and, and and you know, they they say yes 
you know, a good amount of the time. Usually if you're like a convenience store clerk, clerk in a dangerous area or something like that. And similarly, you know, Germany, the UK, various other countries have systems like that. Those systems, you know, seem to work pretty well. So hold on. Uh, I don't want to like catch you off guard, but I, there's been several police officers in the NYPD that have been indicted for accepting bribes for uh, the carry, concealed carry pistol uh, system. That's because when you when you have uh, that level of discretion, it necessarily invites corruption because there's no other way to like really move things. Uh- I, I, I would take very serious issue with this claim. There is no other way to really move things. There are obviously ways to really move things. Like there's a difference between a few indictments of corruption. Jay, uh, do you think the guns are used more in defense than they are in offense by criminals? Like, like do you think do you think they are employed rarely in self-defense compared to how often they're compared uh, by in criminal offenses? Okay, well, that's that's an interesting question, and I'll be honest. When I have tried to answer this question in the data, I have gotten wildly different answers. Uh, and and it it there's the the short version is I am not entirely sure. Um, the the longer version is is that like you know what, what does it mean that a gun is employed? Uh, if I'm a robber and I'm threatening someone with a gun and they, you know, give me their wallet and I leave and no shots are fired, you know, how is that measured? And and then like, what if, you know, that person pulls a gun and it turns into a firefight? Uh, what if like, there's a drunk argument at a bar, someone goes out to their car pulls out a gun and, and the argument escalates. What if the other guy pulled out a knife first? Like, like who is the criminal? What, what constitutes self-defense? Um, a, a lot of these cases are like very hard. What I am pretty confident of though, is that quite a bit of gun death is caused by gangs fighting each other in not very well policed areas. And in those cases, the person defending themselves is not, necessarily more sympathetic than the offender because like the offense is usually in result to some other action um so so if you have good data on this i would be grateful to see it yeah sadly it's not exactly very well tracked but defensive gun use ranges from about uh 50,000 to about 100,000 and numbers estimated per year it's all over the place. Do we know what like the total number of homicide injuries are? I, I know deaths are probably not as high as that number. Well, a lot of defensive uses are just like a guy being like, I have a gun, get out of my house. Or a guy just racking a shotgun, go and get off my property. Yeah, th- those cases are, I-, I mean, it's tricky. Yeah, that's a hard empirical question. I'm just wondering what your intuition was more than anything. But it sounds like you actually looked into it. Yeah, so 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 those questions are like are, are are definitely tricky. I mean, my my suspicion is that in a lot of those cases, you know, burglars are not looking for a fight. You know, if 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 they are trespassing, wait, you don't know that? Well, there's two types of burglars. There's the ones that run away when spotted, and the ones that don't. It's the it's the latter number one that you're worried about. 
My, my understanding is that the vast majority of burglars are, are, are the type that run away. I, if you have data otherwise, like, like I'm, I'm prepared to hear it. No, that's like, true. But the consequences to you in your home is there's a tiny chance that the person breaking in is not there just to rob shit and run away. There's a small chance that they're there to do terrible things to you. And you're not willing, most people are not willing to take the risk. So, so I mean, you know, if, if I have my gun out and I'm, I'm pointing it at them, I've probably also called the police. Um, and, you know, in, in most parts of the United States, the police response time is like incredibly impressive. Like they will be Where there. Where do you live, Jay? Uh, I've lived in Nebraska and I've lived in New York and uh, Omaha, Nebraska, the city. And like, we can both, edit this out if you want. Uh, no, I, I, I'm indestructible. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, 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 make sure you leave that part in. Uh, <laughs> definitely. Uh, I, I mean, like, like in, in both instances where I have contacted the police, they have been there with incredible rapidity. In one case, before I could walk a city block, like, like, like they were there right away. Now, it, it, it is conceivable. Like, if you live in a rural area or, or like, you know, in a, in a part of the city where the police do not effectively patrol, you know, th- then maybe it's a different matter. But Do you think the response time is dependent on the demographics of the area that is policed? I, I assume it would have something to do with the economics, um, but, but I, I haven't seen hard data on this. Do you think it's reasonable that some sections of the population would be reluctant to summon the police based on net past negative experiences with them? For example, if they find themselves to be the target of uh, their attention. Uh, so, I, I mean, yeah, the police are, are not perfect. And, you know, although I would sort of, I, I mean, so here we get into the question of like, why, why does violence occur uh, in, in, you know, bad parts of cities, which is where. No, this we don't even have to broach that. It's more, does, is the, at, is the service of policing as provided by the government equally doled out? Uh, probably not. No. And so do you think it's unreasonable to say that the confidence in the police would be highly dependent on uh, matters that are correlated towards uh, class and privilege? How strong of a correlation are we talking here? So consider this, like you have a very, like you have a very rich neighborhood with, within a gated community uh, you get a call of a burglary. Do you anticipate that you're going to have a, a much faster response to a call like that versus some, you know, random act of violence like a purse snatch in a poor neighborhood? I, I imagine that the well, I imagine the gated community would probably be faster. But like, a, a question is like, how much faster? And 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 I mean, like, I, I could conceive of it being not as fast, honestly, because no one expects it in the gated community. Whereas you might have, I, I mean, in in the poor area of Brooklyn I was walking through like a year ago, there were just two police officers standing right there on the corner. They were clearly, you know, ready for whatever was going to happen. I, I mean, I, I don't know. That, that, I, certainly, though, I mean, t- to your point, I'm sure there are people because they're poor or they are, you know, of some ethnicity reason or just, you know, this is a shitty town that has a shitty sheriff that, you know, don't get as good policing as in other parts of the country. I mean, we can also consider how enforcement is doled out. Like you can look at stop and frisk and how it was implemented in NYC. Well, that that's sort of different from like 
how well the police are going to protect you from violence, right? I don't like, think so. I think it's directly related because whether you or not you have a good relationship with the police is going to be a determinative factor in terms of whether you summon them. If you're constantly the target of unwarranted search, you're not necessarily going to say the police are there to help me. Remember that New York City was the originator of the idea of broken windows policing, that if you take care of minor crimes like, you know, like vandalism, simple possession of handguns, you will stop uh, more serious crimes from going later on. The burdens of this policy, uh, you know, based on, on, on the many, many court cases that the NYPD has had to face in this, have disproportionately fallen upon uh, its minority citizens. Yeah, the, the stat that was published was uh, NYPD stopped more Black and Latino teenagers than there are in New York City. And that's because they stopped the same people multiple times. Okay, that, that, that's true, but it doesn't really change the underlying, like the, what I think is the, the more relevant to this discussion question, which is that New York has like really low rates of crime. Like, in fact, quite a bit lower than in many other larger cities when you adjust for population. Yeah, because you're talking about utility, the, the net that comes out of it, right, Jay? Yeah. The city-country distinction strikes me as really archaic here in Canada because essentially U.S. gun crime is concentrated in about 14 specific cities that have very specific street gang problems. Here in Canada, like our cities are the safe parts of the country and the countryside is the dangerous part because the gangs are more rural. So essentially the places where you're more likely to have to defend yourself with a gun is the very part of the country where response time could be an hour. Yeah, and again, in, in, in that kind of scenario, like I said, you live in a rural area, maybe the police response isn't fast, then like you have a legitimate reason to have a gun. But, but, but critically, not a reason to have a handgun, right? There's a reason I keep saying like no civilian ownership of handguns, but like, you know, rifles, shotguns, you know, maybe. Um, and, and that's because like handguns are easy to conceal and tend to be used in crime like really overwhelmingly. Whereas rifles and shotguns tend to be much more likely to be defensive weapons. Yeah, but how marginal is the advantage of handguns in terms of concealment? Considerable. Yeah. I would, cons- I would second that as well. There's a reason that handguns are like 80% of crime use. It's because they're concealable. Yeah, I would third that, but I want to hear, hear your argument, Kulak. Like what I'm saying is handguns, yeah, they're much more concealable. You can wear a more normal outfit with them and conceal it, but it might just be oh, okay, I can't use a handgun now. I'm just going to wait till, a, till it's a cold day. I can wear my jacket and have my little carbine underneath it. I'm going to use a sawed-off double-barrel shotgun instead. So, so you're saying, Kulak, that during half of the year, this policy <laughs> is going to radically <laughs> reduce gun crime? No, I'm... Because I'm that sounds is, like what you're saying. <laughs> what I'm saying is that... It could marginally affect, oh, these specific days of the year, I'm not going to use it. Or, oh, I'm not going to use something chambered in in 9mm. I'm going to use something chambered in double O buckshot. But quite frankly, it's not obvious that that crime wouldn't be immediately dis- displaced. Well, it's not- well hold, 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 hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. I mean, some crimes, c- crime is a matter of opportunity, right? Like if, if, I, if I remove you know, half of the opportunities, maybe I don't remove half the crime, but I'm going to remove some proportional amount of the crime. 
I'm not sure how proportional could it would be. Like, if I'm like, oh, I'm going to rob this convenience store, I'm going to rob this bank, and it's like, drat, can't use a handgun, I'm going to wait till October to do it, or I'm just going to wait till it's raining and I can wear a raincoat. There you go. You're gonna you're gonna wait until it's raining, or we all get to be safe on sunny days. That sounds like a great result of a policy. Yeah, not obvious to me that it wouldn't just displace. Like, all right, there's five percent less, but we banned this incredibly expansive category of weapons. As opposed to, I think you're imagining it would be like, oh, this reduces it by by thirty, forty, fifty, maybe eighty percent. Handguns aren't available, and somebody wants to commit a, a crime with a gun. Um, and all they've got are rifles and shotguns. I mean, how hard is it to buy a hacksaw? I mean, a hacksaw to cut uh, the gun, the, the the shotgun into a um, you know sawed off so that it, it's readily concealable. So, so, so this is something that has happened in England um, because guns have been effectively banned. What has happened is that, or, or or pistols in particular, is that gangs will a make their own guns and b make their own ammunition. And actually, this really puts some constraints on the gang's ability to cause harm. Because I thought you were going to talk about knives. Knives are a lot less dangerous than guns. You, you, you have to get up well, next okay, to someone Okay, hold on, with a hold knife. on, hold on. London's murder rate uh, caught up and then surpassed New York City's murder rate. Well, New York's murder rate is is like unusually low. So, like, did, did London's like raise, or or did New York's just go down? So, but I mean, if you're going to compare it that way, that means you can plausibly argue that if you introduce handguns to London, you're going to see a reduction in crime. What? If, if because you, they uh, ban guns and it's more crime there. Yeah, like let, let me rephrase that. If you introduce the the same identical gun culture that New York City has which admittedly is very limited within the scheme of the United States, you theoretically and plausibly could have a reduction in murder rate if you apply that to I London. I mean, so I'm, I'm looking at the London homicide numbers. Are, are you talking about the increase in 2014? It was uh, April 2018. Yeah, if I think for like a six-month period, London's murder rate was higher than New York City. So between April 2018 until November 2018, London had a higher rate. And that was partly, uh, primarily driven by uh, increased knife crime. Well, so, so the first thing I would say is that, like, all right, we've, we've gotten the guns. Now let's what, – what, what, what character of crime is this knife crime? Like, I, it's kind of like a – that's all they talk about uh, when it comes to crime in London. They talk about how knife uh, crime has gotten out of control. There was even a judge that argued that no one needs pointy knives and that he supposedly unironically and earnestly recommended a policy of uh, confiscating sharp, uh, not wait, let me see, not necessarily confiscating, but he recommended a policy of selling only dull knives with no so, points. So it's, it's actually interesting that you say this because the history of European table manners is actually trying to get the pointed end knife to have less and less of a role in the meal precisely because in medieval times people would eat at public inns, frequently get into arguments or fights, and stab each other to death with their knives. Um, <laughs> so is, so the idea... Hold on. What is your source for this? Uh, this was in some. 
the better angels of our nature by Steven Pinker. Uh, okay. I, I don't remember offhand what his sources. No, no, were, no, no that's it's, fine. It's Steven Pinker. Uh, so, so like, I mean, I, I'm not sure that that's a completely nuts position. Uh, well, but, it's, it is from the standpoint of, I guess, parody, because whenever you talk about gun restrictions in, in the United States, the, the outcry is always, well, what are you going to ban next? Knives? And then you see London specifically asking to ban knives, and not just any knives, but they start to categorize it based on how pointy the end is. And, and then they say things like, do you really need a pointy end when you're in your kitchen? And I can't believe anybody needs serrations on a knife. <laughs> well, so, 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 so look, I don't, I don't know about the specific England case uh, about okay. knives, but I, I mean, there, there's a lot of conceivable explanations for this phenomenon. Like, I, I think if I were to pick, like, the most sympathetic to my position explanation, it would be that, like, London has just sort of, like, gotten really bad at policing lately, but because there are so few guns available, people are using knives instead, and if there were more guns available, maybe they would use those guns instead and have even more homicides because guns are an easier weapon to use than so knives. That, that's, that's I, I don't all, know if that's true. No, no, I'm saying that's all plausible. It's just impossible to test. But your initial point was about uh, gangs in, 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 England in, uh, in England making improvised weapons or improvised firearms or homemade firearms. Yes, that was my initial point. And, and my point was that that was like, you know, good for reducing gun violence, that they were forced, that they had this extra, you know, it's, it's like if you tax something, you know, if, if I put a, a difficulty tax as opposed to a monetary one, but possibly also a monetary one on acquiring a gun, I'm probably going to reduce the uses of guns. Well, I don't think any of us would disagree with that statement. Put a tax on something, you get less of it. Yeah. Making things harder is like a tax. Alternatively, you get more uh, tax evasion, which was one of the problems with, uh, you know, that, that's even outlasted, you know, prohibition of alcohol. You still have the people who are making moonshine in, 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 in southwestern Virginia and evading the revenues, even though that, that alcohol was, was legal, they just weren't paying taxes on it anymore because, you know, the heck with the revenues. Yeah, the only risk is I might go blind. <laughs> Seems like a great trade. Well, a lot of people disagree with you. It's really safe. If you know what you're doing. I, I, I'm sure it is. <laughs> the hell are you talking? But <laughs> I'm I'm for maximal still availability. Yeah, don't try methanol at home, kids. Nah, don't listen to the Gulak Revolt. Don't drink. Don't drink the four shot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, Jay, I have a question for you. Do you, do you believe uh, there should be any restrictions on law enforcement? the police, the military, or other agents of the government. But any restrictions at all? Of course. Any, any restrictions on their avail- on what firearms they can use? Of course. Let's just focus on firearms. Well, sure. Yeah. I so mean, I mean, I mean, well, there, there are like, if, if you, if you are a cop, you generally do not have an automatic weapon unless you're a SWAT team guy. I am pretty sure there's a police force in the U S like some rinkadink town that has anti-material rifles in their lives. A lot of this, like, basically military tech ending up in police hands is due to this, like, weird appropriations program where if the military doesn't need this anymore, 
they can actually sell it to police departments or even like give it to them. Like it, it's, it's very little cost that these departments have to pay for it. And, and I mean, that program has been criticized and I would agree with the criticism. I think it should, it, it doesn't seem clear why the local police office needs an anti-materiel rifle. Well, why shouldn't they have one? <laughs> because at that point you're not policing your, your, you need to call in the, the, the military or the national guard. But uh, you can buy an anti-material rifle at Cabela's. I don't think that's a good idea for civilian use either. <laughs> I mean, I mean, maybe, maybe because civilians—I don't know—that that... how many how many crimes have been committed with 50 caliber weapons in the United States? I I do not know those statistics off the top of my head. But the but, but is, like the answer is zero. This is falsifiable. I could be wrong, but it's near zero. Certain there's one guy out there who is shooting it at like midnight. I'm sure someone has taken out a traffic sign, but that doesn't. Count. I mean, so 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 again, I would. I I mean, honestly, I would probably be a little less worried about an anti-material rifle than a handgun for the simple reason that like that Barrett is going to be real tough to hide. That's true. You're gonna catch that guy real quick. And I think it's actually a. I actually think it's actually a pretty reasonable niche in uh, law enforcement for a 50 cal. Because if you need to stop, if you need to stop a vehicle or kill someone inside a building or someone on the other side of a building, it's actually a pretty effective means of doing so. That is fair. You can you can take out an engine block. So so okay. So 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 basically, you've seen. In principle, yeah, I think there probably should be restrictions. I don't really know what those restrictions are, as we've—I don't even know what they are in the status quo, as we've just said. Uh, and I feel like that's maybe a—you know—that's a—that's a question of a, a practical question. I—I I, I don't know. Oh yeah, that's right. The killdozer guy—he had a fifty cal. Yes. Okay, there we go. They didn't have one, so they just had to wait for him to run out of gas and kill himself. And I remember reading the reading the discussion of what happened afterward is that there were calls made to the Colorado National Guard that you know we need anti tank weapons uh, out there that they were talking about deploying you know like uh, an army or Army National Guard Apache helicopter mounted with Hellfire missiles to take off this to take out this bulldozer that this guy had modified with this basically just steel plate just he had he had lying around his shop probably explain what that whole business was to <laughs> listeners who okay. don't know. Our, okay, put our, a link to the Killdozer story, oh, or the, uh, or the comic, maybe. So to summarize, uh, this was a zoning dispute in Colorado? Of course it was. Yeah. Yep. So, <laughs> at least I can remember. Yeah. Everything, everything, everything that went, it all, it all started with a zoning dispute. Uh, this, this guy... I'm, 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 <laughs> I, I will not be the non-libertarian person on zoning, I'll tell you that much. Actually, Hemeyer is actually probably a good... Uh, Hemeyer is actually probably a good a Rosarch text to see where someone lands. If, <laughs> like I imagine there's a lot of people in this room who idolized the man. Idolized a man who converted a bulldozer into a tank and started murdering people. He didn't murder anybody. Yeah, he didn't actually murder started anybody. Started destroying property. You're not for lack of trying. Let me summarize it just for posterity. So Marvin Hemeyer had a a shop in uh, Granby, Colorado, and he had a dispute with the local municipality about what kind of facility he can have on this property. He appealed it multiple times and they still ruled against him and eventually he got fed up, put together a, a bulldozer, 
cobbled together a bunch of heavy steel plates and welded them onto the frame and then started a rampage all around town. They weren't able to stop him for a long time because none of he was so well enveloped in armor that nothing could penetrate it. And he was still, he was able to operate the bulldozer through the use of several cameras. So I think the way it ended, as McMuster said, they just waited for him to run out of gas and eventually he killed himself because he, he wasn't even able to get out. He welded, I think he welded himself in. He lured himself into the killdozer. He used a crane from the outside to lower the roof on. Um, and he didn't actually run out of gas. What happened is that he was trying to destroy, I believe it was a hardware store, and one of his tracks slipped into a sub-basement level, and he couldn't get it moving again, so he he killed himself. So that's what I would refer to as a low-probability event. And (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. Well, I think it still calls to have an AT4 in the trunk. Come on. (laughs) So, Jay, let me ask this. Uh, when it comes, I know you said you don't know exactly what kind of limits police officers should have, but what would be your framework in thinking it through? Well, um, I, I, boy, you know, this is like a, a, probably a complex area of policy. Now, I've, and, and given that I've already screwed it up once, I, I, I sort of hesitate to like <laughs> make claims uh, in, in this domain. Uh, okay, how about this? What restrictions would you support on military, on the military? Well, certainly the Geneva Convention is uh, pretty good. Uh, although, you know, that's a weird one because the military is actually not permitted to use tear gas, but police forces are. Well, well, Mac, let's 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 reframe this for less than like cruelness. Let's rephrase that as uh, what's the maximum yield they should be allowed to employ? Well, I mean. I mean, I feel like that also would depend on specifically the police officer. I mean, if you have a specialist, like in a large city where, you know, you, you conceivably might have a killdozer, right? And, and you know, you've got the one guy who's like specially trained and licensed to use this thing, uh, then, then that's very different than, you know, any officer can, you know, get out the rocket launcher, right? Like that's, um, so, but I, I I would probably base it on like, you know, risk to civilians, uh, risk of the weaponry, like being stolen and used by a bad actor, like probability of the police using it, whether there were knock-on effects. I mean, the, the whole like military hardware being given to police chief, police departments uh, has proven to be kind of problematic. Um, and like, you know, the, the, the basis of like, well... Let's see. I, I, I don't know. It, you know, it's, it's hard. Like, you, you've got two approaches, right? You have the maximally permissive approach. Like, you know, here's a list of things you can't do. Or you could have the minimally approach. Like, here's a list of things you can do. And, like, you know, maybe for different kinds of weapons, you, you switch. Like, maybe for, like, handguns, like, sure, whatever. And, and maybe for, like, explosives, there's like a specific list of things that are allowed. And, and I would evaluate it based on risk. You know, I'd probably like, you know, do some pilot programs. Like let's let this police, you know, department that generally has a good reputation, you know, have these weapons and see what they do. And then like, you know, maybe talk to the officers or do some studies. I, 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 I would, I'm not sure how exactly uh, I, I would implement it. Also, yeah. Where are you going with this? You why are you interrogating Jay on? this part. Okay. I was going to, I was going to get to that. So what would be, 
the point where you would not support the government having more firearms than the civilians? Whoa. Uh, well, um, I mean, if the government wasn't able to like enforce the law effectively, if there was like, you know, a ton of crime, uh, if, if, if the government was ineffective at providing safety to most people, that that would be like the obvious one, right? Like that's that's what I was saying about the Congo in the in the pre-show stuff. Like you know, clearly in the Congo, you should you should have the same guns as the government because the government is your enemy and is not keeping you safe. So I guess your impossible scenario is the pl- someplace becoming the Congo, and mine is someplace becoming Iceland. Well, I mean, I, I I'm not sure I would call it impossible. I mean. Well, whatever democracies you want to say, do like, fail. Yeah, I'm. I, I, well, I, th- then you have the question of like, would having guns actually prevent the failure of democracy? And I'm not really convinced that it would. Like, Germany had lots of guns before the Nazis took over. Well, the, the, we are individuals. We are not society. So, what about the case for the individual living through the fall of their democracy? Well, then, then you have well. How does the democracy fall? Is is one of the questions. Like, if if this is a zombie apocalypse, then yeah. Or, or if it's just like chaos, you know, if there are roving bands, Mad Max style, yeah. Then 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 we all need a lot of guns. Um, and and that's sort of you know the the crime is not being enfor- is not being prevented. The law is not being enforced. Sort of scenario. You do have a falsifiable threshold. Yeah, I, I, I just mean, just like I, I do. I, I, I'm not sure I would go. Well, I, I'm not going to go as far as the Congo. Like there are, like you know, probably Mexico is a closer one. Like, like you know, I I wouldn't really trust the police if there if there are non-government actors enforcing uh, trying to monopolize violence. Is what you'd say? Yeah, I, I, yeah. At the point when the government loses its monopoly on on violence or or its near monopoly on violence, that that's probably when. I would like say, or, or or again, if it's just not like effective at preventing well, crime. What if the government maintains its monopoly, but it's like committing the Holocaust? Like we had, we had two genocidal, crazy ideologies in the past hundred years that between them took over something like fifty percent of the world. Like between Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and all the communist states, more than fifty percent of the world has been under some kind of totalitarian murderous control in the past and 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 i don't think that the presence of guns in citizens hands would really do a lot to to stop those totalitarian states from taking over totalitarian states take over generally because they have more people with guns who are better trained and unified you know syria had a lot of guns it didn't help well syria doesn't have that many guns at all actually is the thing. The rebels were not very well armed. Didn't help is kind of a, a loose... Well, let, 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 let me rephrase. It's very... Un- okay. In fact, let, let, me, let me put it a different way. Revolutions almost always fail unless a foreign entity intervenes and helps the revolutionaries to overthrow their government. Violent revolutions, to be clear. You have a number of peaceful revolutions that happen. But violent revolutions almost always require the involvement of a foreign power. Um, and, and usually they fail. It's generally not the test is, you know, the locals can get weapons.
tests, generally the test is, can we get a foreign government to intervene? And if we're getting a foreign government to intervene, you know, that can probably help with the weapons thing, too. I, I just don't think the weapons, the presence of weapons in civilian hands makes a big difference in terms of preventing, you know, totalitarian takeovers. Foreign powers intervening is the baseline. You can't tell the story of Soviet Russia or, or communist China without talking about all the foreign powers intervening and propping up those totalitarian regimes. Wait, wait, wait. I, I'm confused. What foreign power intervened to, to allow the Bolsheviks to take over in, in Russia? Kaiser Wilhelm, like um, Imperial Germany, actually loaded Lenin and a bunch of other like primary socialists onto a train car and shipped them from Switzerland to Moscow and actually blacked out the windows because they didn't want it to be known that they were funding essentially the communists going back into Russia. And this was their grand strategy for this is how we get out Russia out of World War One. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And did we want to get into any like into any details such as, you know, the three D printing or specific laws or anything like that, or is it more I think it's relevant in just how hard it makes makes gun regulation. So like for example if you ban handguns, well, you can just saw off a shotgun and you have essentially a high-powered handgun. So if you want to ban handguns, functionally, you almost have to ban all guns because it's very easy to convert anything into a carbine or a sawed-off shotgun. So, so I think the empirical data like flies kind of in the face of that. Uh, places that have banned handguns you know, have, have found that you know, it, it's pretty effective at reducing crime. Also, a sawed-off shotgun is still like quite a bit larger and harder to conceal than a handgun. Um, but it, it, we're, if you're if we're including 3D printing in this, then it, it, that's a you know that that's a step function. Yeah, that that's a different animal. 3, 3D printing can indeed get around it. Yeah, and I think that the if if part of the sales pitch for um, you know disarming the population is uh, y'all are going to be a lot more safe uh, if you if we do this, like, um, and that's that's one of the arguments. Then. As soon as you allow for um, you know, unrestricted manufacture of firearms, then uh, all of a sudden the population is going to need to rearm themselves because now only the people who want to use them for crime are going to have them. Yeah, well, I mean, that's one possibility. Another possibility is that you you know, do a good job of enforcing and restricting 3D printers, right? Yeah, I just I, I, I have a hard time believing that's even possible. It's pretty tricky. Well, I mean... Can you make a 3D printer? Like, I have to buy them from a store. Yeah, but I can't imagine actually effectively enforcing a total ban on 3D printing. Well, I, I'm not saying a total ban. I'm saying, like, you know, your, your 3D printer only works, for example, if it's connected to the internet. And, you know, any software that goes through it is, you know, passed up to the cloud first to make sure that you're not trying to print a gun or a bomb or something. So then you go on Reddit and find how to find out how to jailbreak your 3D printer. Uh, it's not. I, I mean, well, that that's that's a level of difficulty. Then that, like, you know, I I would imagine that would have you know an effect on the total amount of crime. Right, but there are other things that so you don't need that many people to, to like jailbreak their 3D printers to cause a lot of a lot of weapons to be made because. Anybody who owns a 3D printer that is jailbroken can make a ton of money selling 
the the outputs that that are illicit. Well, yeah, but I mean, an arms dealer can also make money selling, you know, illegal arms. You know, they don't have to three D print them; they can smuggle them across the border um, or something. And like, or, or or you could have an actual factory somewhere. Um, but but like, th- then I, I mean, I'm not saying it will eliminate it entirely. I'm saying, you know, again, this is like a tax. And you know, now it's possible. Don't get me wrong. Maybe it turns out that actually enforcing this is impossible. Like maybe it just doesn't work and you can't really pull it off. In which case, yeah, this kind of enforcement is a no-go. We'll have to try something else. Right. Well, we saw this already with software, with cryptographic software in the 90s, right? The government tried to restrict it as, as you know, under ITAR. And I think that's correct. Yes. And they that failed miserably. Yeah, that failed miserably, and it's possible that that 3D printers will go a similar route. But it's also possible that, like, you know, maybe it's easier to regulate a box that, like, does stuff with metal than it is a piece of cryptographic software. Um, I I would suspect that it is, in fact, much easier uh, to regulate a box filled with metal because the box filled with and doing things with metal is, like, you know, similar, much more similar to a gun than it is to a piece of software that can be invisibly, instantaneously transmitted and copied ad infinitum. Uh, so, you know, my my intuition would be that, you know, the response to 3D printing of guns is to, you know, regulate 3D printers and that that will probably be, you know, pretty effective because, again, it's a piece of hardware. Yeah, I, I don't know how much you followed the latest in in like in three D printed guns, but now people are making three D printed guns out of out of PLA, out of plastic, and they actually surprisingly they work. There's a thing called the Plastikov, which is <laughs> yeah, it is it is a plastic receiver for an AK, and it's held up for what over a thousand rounds, I believe. Hold on, the receiver or the whole gun? The, so the receiver and the furniture and the magazine, the part that is metal are parts that are not regulated as, as firearms that you can buy without without any background check, such as the barrel. The, there's less effective guns that are 3D printed that are almost entirely plastic, including a plastic barrel version that are, you know, like basically derringers. Okay, well, then, then, then maybe we restrict the plastic box too like it's it's still just a box right it's it's a physical object well let me quickly interject for those that don't know the u.s legal system the receiver of a firearm is a firearm when you when you take apart a firearm into its bare parts as a way to track down and like make sense of the whole regime the legal system just decided that the receiver is the firearm so it's not the barrel it's not the trigger group it's not the action it's not the bolt it's not the grip. It's not anything else. It's just the receiver, which can be made entirely out of plastic. It doesn't require a significant amount of stru- uh, strength uh, or stress testing. Okay. So again, maybe that then will have to change that law if we get into a regime where there are into a world where there are widespread, you know, plastic weapons or something. I mean, that's already that's already run into some problems because. So, for example, you can you can purchase uh, what is known as an eighty percent receiver, and what it is is almost 
a receiver, but you need to mill it out a few more times to before you get a functioning receiver that is capable of housing the trigger group in action. And so there's been prosecutions at the federal level between uh, on providers that supply these 80% receivers. This has been primarily in um, AK pattern receivers because you can just sell it as a flat piece of metal and you can uh, give them instructions on uh, how to turn it into a finished receiver. And that usually involves just the vice where you clamp down on the vice and bend it two times and suddenly you have a functioning you have a functioning receiver for an AK pattern rifle. So once you once you kind of go down this road of reductio absurdism, you you start to say, well, let's ban all metal because it's difficult to really demarcate when something when raw materials turn into a firearm. Well but but it's not that difficult to demarcate. I, I mean it may be philosophically it may be philosophically difficult to demarcate like what is a gun? You know, is this the original broom? Um, but you know, Theseus's ship. Just as background, I gave a presentation to the local federal public defender's office on kind of the craziness of federal firearm law, and there's a lot of cases about exactly what counts as a gun, what counts as a silencer, what counts as a machine gun. Everyone has these almost platonic ideals of what a machine gun, a silencer, a firearm is, but once you start getting into the edge cases, you see that they're heavily prosecuted usually by U.S. attorneys that don't really know what they're talking about. So they largely rely on the expertise of the ATF. So it, it currently is a problem because you have these edge cases that don't really, it's difficult to figure out exactly which way to fall. And hanging over everyone's head are some serious uh, prison time sentences. Well, so, so that is like a, a serious problem for those people in, involved in those court cases. I, I, I don't mean to, to dismiss their consideration. Uh, From the perspective of, you know, what do we need to regulate to reduce gun homicide? Like that might be a tricky problem to solve, but it is a manifestly measurable one, right? Like that, that question does not require deep philosophical consideration. That question requires tinkering and, you know, measuring. So if you're literally if you're just going the full pragmatist route, why are you why are you interested in cutting down the upper level of rifles and above when pretty much all crime is committed with handguns? Well, not all crime is I, I mean part of the answer is yes, I care a lot more about handguns than the other stuff. I mean, yeah, you're right. Uh, that's that's most of my focus. But, you know, not all crime is committed with handguns, there are still crimes committed with rifles, and I, you know, I, I think that asking someone to go through a you know meeting with a doctor to see that they're not you know schizophrenic or something seems like a reasonable precaution before giving them you know before letting them buy a rifle. I remember seeing the statistics on deaths from rifles in the U.S. and. Apparently, rifles kill fewer people than just blunt objects. In the U.S., like, more murders are committed. It's not, it's not blunt objects, it's fists. Bare hands. You're, you're more likely to be beaten to really? death and killed with a rifle. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 I could see that. A lot of bar fights end badly. I mean, I, I, again, if, if, you're, if, you're, if your position that you're offering me is, let's ban all the handguns and be fairly permissive with the rifles, 
I mean, you know, it's not my ideal position, but I would probably take that. If I were a, if I were a legislator and, and that's what's on the table, you know, I would call that a victory. So one, another question that I have is how, how would you describe to us? Sorry, we're just like piling on you. <laughs> no, this is easy. This is fine. I'm enjoying myself. Well, you can, you can, you can also, you can drill us and ask us points. Okay, okay, all right. Yeah, that's a great question. Yassine, how many innocent people need to die of gun homicide or suicide before you think it's a good idea to restrict? Uh, I mean, as many as like heart disease. Well, no. For for me, that number would be irrelevant. What I would care more about would be. Um, all right, so you, you are willing to let every other person on Earth except for you die, or, or 90% of the population? Well, this assumes that banning the guns will actually reduce the amount of gun deaths, right? Or amount of homicides. Well, may, maybe it won't or will not, but I, I'm, just, I'm just observing that, that, that the position that, like, no number is sufficient. That, well, that's what's really the sufficient number of people being beaten to death before you start chopping off hands? Okay, hold on. You know, he asked me a question. I'm willing to answer. Uh, so, yes, the number of people dead by firearms, including up to 99% of the of mankind, is completely irrelevant to the question of banning it. Because my, as I said before, my counterfactual would be to examine the the how good of a steward the agents in, in charge of government are compared to the civilians before I'm willing to cede that right. Okay, so if you have a choice between two worlds, and and one world is the present world, and another world is the present world, but with free gun rights, and nine-tenths of the people you love dead from gunshots, you would, would pick prefer the, would pick the, the second no, no, no. world. I would pick the first world. But but I'm confused then. Why? Uh, I don't think it's confusing because I uh, also object to the causality of your hypothetical. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, so so let's let's change it a bit then. Um, would you if, if we let guns into Japan, if that was done and and they had you know more gun deaths? Do you think Japan should allow its citizens to carry guns and swords? Yes. Okay. So, and and if this happens, and a ton of Japanese people are killed by guns and swords, or, or even just a small number, even if like only a hundred a year, whereas now there's like one, or no, no, that can't be right. There's so probably it, like look, I'll, I'll I'll go with your hypothetical. My answer would be to examine the pattern of violence exhibited by the police and the military in Japan. If they can demonstrate that they're responsible to a sufficiently greater degree than the civilian uh, population, then I would be more amenable to restrictions on civilian ownership. So it's completely irrelevant how many people die. It's what's pertinent to me is the level of responsibility exhibited by agents of the state. Okay, so, so, so if we were to allow guns in Japan, and a lot of people die. And everyone says, hey, we want to bring back the previous gun laws. We want to go back. This is terrible. You think we should keep it the way it is? No, I would be, I would be amenable to that, to that proposal. But okay, well, I, I just said, like, if we let guns in Japan and there's no increase in the murder rate, 
I would say, oh, well, I guess I was wrong. But if there was an increase in the murder rate, you wouldn't change your position. You wouldn't say we should, it was bad to let these guns in. That's correct. That that factor would be irrelevant to my analysis. Huh. Yeah, see, I, I think that that's, I just, I, I just, I think that's crazy. I mean, I outlined why I, I support. I, I, I don't mean to be like, and, and, and I just don't know how else to, to, to put it. Like the, these, these are human lives, and, and, and what is the benefit? Well, as I said in the beginning, my, my, the basis for my support for gun rights isn't empirical on, on the grounds of how many people will die versus how many people will be saved. Uh, the basis for, for my support for gun rights is more philosophical. It looks at the difference and entitlement between the, the state and civilians and whether they are entitled to their greater rights. And I would say no. But but you're so so you're valuing those rights as much higher than human lives. Right. Don't we do that for a lot of rights? Yeah. Well so here's here's an example. You can say we can stop all crime tomorrow if we just incarcerate a hundred percent of the population. And then if someone says, Well, I'm not okay with that, you can just say, Well, don't you value lives more than your freedom to be outside of incarceration? Just like the example that you provided us with just now, I would say, yes, I value the lives to a lesser degree than the cur- curtailment of freedom. Well, okay, that's, that's fair. Uh, so, so let me be a little more precise in my formulation. I, I mean, so, so here again, is, in my original thing, it's like the utility to risk ratio, right? Like I, I, I named that continuum. It seems to me, you know, the loss of, of you know, mobility. You know, I, I have to live in a prison cell. I can't leave. Uh, the loss of you know other sorts of freedoms are really constraining. The loss of not being able to have a weapon, you know, again, I don't need the gun to get to work. I don't need the gun to do my job. I don't need the gun to to see my family and loved ones. So what you're proposing is always going to be subjective analysis. We're not going to be able to resolve it. Right. I would love to have a gun on my way to work. <laughs> like I've had way too many fucking crazy people try and put me in the hospital or kill me. Um, that's why I'm actually, I'm not going to, I'm probably moving soon. <laughs> okay. Well, that, the, so again, like I said, scenarios where you cannot rely on the police to protect you. Which you, which exist. Well, and, I, I guess. <laughs> and, and I, I said in those cases, I think it's reasonable. And yeah, of course, the Supreme Court has said that there's no, um, you know, the, the police don't have a, a specific responsibility to respond to any individual person. So you could call nine one one, and they might just not show up. Uh, yeah, but then that, I, I mean, if if th- that's mostly to prevent the police from having to show up when you're clearly a prankster, right? Like if you if you keep calling, no, the police, no, 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 hold on, that was a Supreme Court decision in the seventies. Two women called the police after they spotted home intruders. And uh, no one arrived. This was in Washington, D.C. They called the police about a half an hour later and no one uh, arrived. They ended up being robbed and raped. Oh, and they sued the police for lack of uh, protection. And the Supreme Court said, they said, the governments have no responsibility and are not liable for not protecting you. So, so what I was going to say was, you know, the, the, the mechanism by which that situation is corrected is that the politicians in charge of that would probably be in pretty hot water with their constituents. I mean, the easier way to correct it is just to make them li- uh, liable for misconduct. I, I feel like the liability issue there specifically raises like 
a, a lot of other fundamental problems. Like, I mean, doctors are liable for misconduct. Why not police? Well, what, what constitutes misconduct is, is I, I mean, okay, let, let me back up. You're talking to a lawyer, careful, Jay. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Lawyers, it is true. doctors, engineers. Well, hold, hold on, no, 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 no. Maybe it is true that, that there is some form of liability that you could ascribe to the police that would work out in practice. I had a question with how to move from the current ownership in the United States to uh, a system that has significantly a significantly lower ownership. Like how to get to Iceland or Japan from here? No, no, no. Iceland has a decent amount of uh, firearms. Oh, I did not know that. It's like 30, 30 per 100 uh, capita. Per yeah, so, so I, I, I don't know that it's actually possible to get from here to like the United Kingdom, for example, or, or to Norway. I, I, it might Wait, though be Norway. possible. Why, why Norway? Norway is not known for low firearm rate. They've got a lot of guns. But they have very little crime. Well, that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> well, but, but, but they do have restrictions. We were, we were under the assumption that there's a causal relationship between guns and crime. Well, well but, it- but part, part of the reason is they do restrict your ability to get a fire. You, you, you can't just like go to the store and buy one. There are background checks. It's more involved than in the United States and Germany, similarly. Yeah, it's actually easier to own a machine gun in Norway than in the United States. There's severe restrictions, but they're how hard is it to acquire a hand? I'm just looking at machine guns. This well, was I, I don't think I don't think machine guns are a very research. representative, you know, example. They because... should be. <laughs> all right, all right. In, in in Germany, there are a lot of guns, uh, but there's very little gun crime. And if you want to get a gun. Uh, you generally have to go through background checks and psychiatric evaluations and things like this. Uh, and it's pretty effective. I would posit that gun ownership is really a second best solution to a high trust society. You know, if, if you trust your, if you trust your neighbors to take care of you, to not uh, take your stuff, to not hurt you, to not kill you, that's, that's a good society. It's it's when you don't have that level of social trust on the micro scale within individual neighborhoods, small small communities, and on the macro scale when you branch out to cities, provinces, and and, and whole nations. It's really it's really it's really the lack of trust I think that motivates at bottom a lot of gun ownership. You know, going back to you know what what Yassine's been quoting um you know from from the federalist papers if men were if men were angels no government would be necessary i would say that that the same principle sort of applies to guns but this is this is not a perfect world this is a very flawed and and fallen world yeah and if you ask me what would my utopia be as much as i love guns if you said hey we can have a world where there's no gun because no one needs them. I would say, yeah, hell yeah, let's go with that. Because it's uh, guns, firearms kind of exist to solve a present problem with human relations, either between individuals or between uh, individuals and institutions. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Anyone else besides Jay want to add anything? Has anybody looked at, at, say, more restrictive states in the US and what their specific gun laws are and how 
they are, how effective or not effective they are, or how annoying they are. So I've I've had real difficulty. I I I would love to see some good studies on that. I I haven't been able to find any. Uh, again, whenever you know somebody tries to measure it in the United States, there's just so much noise that I I've had difficulty finding a signal. Maybe okay. there is some. Even the professionals have been really really hard pressed to find uh, good data and draw conclusions from it. The one that I uh, that I most often refer to was done by the uh, National Academies of Sciences. Firearms and Violence, a critical review. It was uh, done in, in 2005. It was a very large meta-analysis of studies on different proposals like assault weapons bans, uh, handgun waiting periods, and they were unable to find any sort of conclusions on you know what what laws would actually reduce the number of gun crimes. That makes sense to me. There's, there's just insufficient data. I mean, I can post in the show notes uh, Scott Alexander's uh, attempt at an analysis where he concludes that uh, if you do reduce the level of gun ownership, you, you will reduce the level of crime, but it's going to be primarily in the South. And uh, I think a more effective way to reduce crime is to take the culture that you find in Wyoming and impose it on the United States South. And, and I'll also say this. ultimately. It's really disappointing to me that there's so much consternation over guns because ultimately, although I think the arguments are pretty strong in favor of regulation and restriction of handguns in particular, ultimately these things just do not cause a lot of deaths. It's it's a really small thing and the focus on like, you know, you know, mass shootings, those numbers are even smaller. And the amount of attention and rancor that this issue generates is just wholly out of proportion to the actual consequences of it. And, and if I were actually a politician, I would probably you know, throw all of my gun control fantasies completely under the bus and you know, put that on the table to negotiate no problem if I thought there was something actually important like zoning reform that I could get for it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say like vaping or something. <laughs> vaping is also a very low impact thing. Zoning restriction though increases people's housing costs and that has a huge impact on families. I, I ultimately think that guns are sort of a silly sideshow issue that, that aren't really worth the attention they get. 